Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 60. I never want either of us to assume that the other person or anyone in our lives is incapable of evolving and of changing and becoming something more. Mihi Kim Court is the author of Outside the Lines, How Embracing Queerness Will Transform Your Faith. Uh, she's recently come out within a straight passing marriage, uh, and her book kind of dives into that process of what it was like to, to realize that she was queer, uh, something that she had kind of known all along but had never really claimed. Uh, and then the coming out process, uh, she's also a theologian. Uh, she does a lot of really good theological work in that book as well. Such an incredibly needed perspective of what do we do when we might be in marriages that uh, we don't want to give up, we're, we're happy in our marriages, uh, but are realizing that there's more to our identities than what meets the eye. Mihi's other writing and commentary can be found at Time, uh, BBC World Service, uh, USA Today, Huffington Post, Christian Century, On Being, Sojourners. Uh, the list kind of goes on and on. <laughs> She's a Presbyterian minister, a PhD student in religious studies at Indiana University, uh, and that's where she lives with her Presbyterian minister husband and their three kids. So excited about this episode. Uh, let's just go ahead and dive in. Mihi, hi, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very good, very excited to be here, finally, we did it. Right, we did it. <laughs> it's, it's been a struggle, but we're, we, we're here. So. Yeah, yeah, that's like my life every day. I'm like, oh, I'm here. That's the miracle. Yeah. That's the uh, success right there. Oh, that's real. That is so real. <laughs> uh, so to start, this is a question I ask everyone, uh, but how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So I identify um, as a lot of things. Um, I think that uh, an image that often um, that I've often uh, come to um, because of some various readings most recently. Um, but, but to think in terms of who I am as a constellation, as sort of an assemblage. Um, so there's not one single anchoring point. Um, no one sort of, um, no, just one hook to sort of, you know, hang my hat on kind of thing. Um, so um, Korean American immigrant um, spouse, mother, um, grad student right now, ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, um, someone who has entered their 40s this year. <laughs> and that feels <laughs> pretty, pretty significant. Um, so I turned 40 in the summer. And, um, and someone who identifies um, as queer. 
And that is, is something that um, I'm continuously living into um, in sort of positive and negative ways and, and positive and negative in terms of um, what I'm trying to add to my life and, and the way that it invites me to abandon and let go of um, certain pieces of identity that aren't um, fruitful or helpful or meaningful. Um, and I can talk about that some more in a little bit, but, um, so yeah. And then, um, just thinking about in terms of my faith and how that's, that's brought me, um, to a better sense of who I am these days. Um, I think it's just a lot of, uh, different life seasons and circumstances. Um, I grew up in the church, uh, in a mainline, um, in the Presbyterian church, um, but it within a Korean immigrant population, um, so that, that has definitely shaped, um, a lot of my identity, um, in terms of, um, my faith identity and my cultural identity. And, um, but I think that in terms of, um, creating a space and a community and an environment where, um, where I was eventually able to ask those questions because I felt like I had, um, such a solid foundation in a community of, um, believers. Um, and, and that's not just like a specific community of believers, but just sort of a larger sort of body of Christ, like really feeling like, okay, I can ask these questions now because I'm being held in the body of Christ. Um, and so, uh, moving to Bloomington, um, about seven years ago, uh, two months after our first children were born. So we have twins who are now seven. Um, so the twins were, were two months old when we moved to Bloomington. Um, I had just, uh, stepped down from a position as an associate pastor to church. We had come here for my husband, Andy's position. And, um, and I am thrown into this whole new world of, um, uh, being the primary caregiver for these two wonderfully beautiful, um, and insanely exhausting, <laughs> um, creatures. <laughs> um, and, and, and just trying to reorient my whole life around, um, that new, this sort of new life situation. Um, so I started taking classes over at IU at Indiana University. Um, so Bloomington is the flagship campus um, for uh, IU. And, and they have, um, I'm pretty sure, one of the first gender studies programs in the country. Um, so the Kinsey Institute is located here. And, um, and there's just a ton of resources and, and just some incredible research that began here around um, sort of topics of gender identity and sexuality and queerness. And so I thought, okay, I'm here. I don't have a whole lot else going on. Um, and, uh, I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just sit in on a class. Um, so did that for a few semesters and that, um, the content and the reading and the conversations and the community felt like church. Um, it was working on me and doing some things on me that um, I hadn't anticipated, but I knew was allowing for some of these questions um, and, and some permission to ask those questions and to feel those answers or the possibility of those answers to happen. Um, and so um, I, I really count that as, you know, as God's grace, as God's provision um, to, to have had that space and those experiences. Um, and so that, that really gave me sort of the, the meat for, um, some of this transformation. I don't know if transformation is, is quite the, the, the right word, just feeling like a, a better sense of who I am coming a little bit closer to who I am, um, just in these last five years. Um, 
so yeah, so I mean, church stuff is always there and um, did some campus ministry stuff and, and that continued to sort of feed the vocational side of my identity. Um, but it was really just being on campus and um, having, the, having, having these classes and having the space to um, really delve into these questions of identity for myself um, that, that really um, allowed for these shifts to happen um, mm-hmm. in really wonderful ways. I mean, you're mentioning like, like shifting and shifts. Um, and, and I'm curious cause, cause like coming to this kind of identity of, of being queer is, is one, like, as I was flipping through your book is one that you've kind of come to a little bit more recently. Um, and in the context of, of like a straight passing marriage, um, I, I'm curious what those shifts like, wh- what do you mean by like shifts? Like what, what that kind of was like, and then what that experience has been like coming to this realization when you're in the midst of, uh, of like a straight passing relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am also curious. <laughs> 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 so, you know, um, that's to say that I, I'm definitely still working a lot of this out and working a lot of it out with Andy as well. And, um, you know, and working it out with um, within conversations um, with other people, with other friends, and, and people who know me and know us. Um, and so, I mean, I think that there are a couple of things that come to mind. Um, one is that um, I think, and this is this, I think this goes back to um, really um, being rooted in a faith, in a faith tradition, and faith language, but to hold up a lot of these tensions and paradoxes in our lives. Um, I think that that is just sort of inevitable in terms of being human. Um, just realizing that there are going to be a lot of things that don't fit maybe logically or systematically or scientifically, um, but that they can still be true. Um, and so that's been something that's, I don't know if it's like a comforting thing or sort of a reassuring thing, but it helps me, it helps stabilize me in a lot of ways. Because I think that if I feel like I need and we've, we've gone through this, like Andy and I will have had conversations, we've had conversations where we feel like we need to figure this out. We need to have this, this clear cut label for people. So people know what to do with us, and how to see us and how to understand us. And we, I think we're, we're, we're at a much better place now in terms of not feeling that pressure or that expectation. And I think it's because we're starting to realize and understand, and I definitely am, um, in terms of, of my own identity, but realizing that, um, instead of focusing on or grounding myself in a strict identity, um, to appreciate, um, who we are as, um, as subjectivity. Um, and, and that means, um, realizing again, the sort of constellation and assemblages that happen within a person, um, embodied in a person, um, uh, that can't be demarcated by these sort of check marks that you, um, have to fill out on a, on a governmental form, you know, in terms of your race and ethnicity and your gender and, um, you know, where are you from and, and what, um, you know, all those different questions you have to ask to be, um, basically to be regulated by the state. And I talk about this a lot about <laughs> these sort of state regulated categories that end up being, um, really super meaningless, um, when, um, when we try to fit ourselves and squeeze ourselves, I mean, it's, it's sort of cliche, but squeeze ourselves into these boxes because no one box, nothing can totally encompass who we are. Um, you know, that we're all in process and, um, you know, how do we, how do we carry in our bodies, um, our past and our present and the future all at the same time. Um, 
So then the other piece to um, this whole process has been also thinking about it in terms of orientation um, uh, at a lot of levels. And so for me and Andy in this very uh, cis hetero passing kind of um, marriage and relationship, um, we've definitely had to talk and communicate and, and make some new kind of commitments. So not just reorienting ourselves in terms of commitment to each other and what that means and what that looks like. Um, but what does that mean to be committed, um, to each other's sort of processes and journeys and seasons and, um, and realize that our commitment, um, in terms of marriage isn't just about us anymore. Um, and so I, we're in a very specific situation. I know this doesn't apply for everybody, but we have children, you know. And so what does it mean that we are committed in marriage to each other with children? Um, and so we've we've expanded sort of our notion of commitment and covenant to include like this life together, you know, that it doesn't mean that we are the center of this commitment. Um, uh, so we're, we're sort of uh, for lack of a, again, less sort of trendy word, deconstructing all these sort of traditional notions of, um, these, these scripts that we've been given about marriage and about adulthood and about commitment and about loyalty, um, having to sort of flesh that out in, um, a much more, I don't know, in a much more like embodied and engaged way. So that's not just like these abstract, like, you're married to each other and that means you're bound legally and you share a checking account and your names are on everything and you know from tax forms to the mortgage um but what does that look like in our day to day um and so some days it feels like it's a struggle in terms of um him trying to feel secure in our commitment together knowing that my orientation to the world is different has shifted because it's included um, it's beyond straight males, you know? Um, and what does that mean for him to be married to and committed to and have his life together with a woman who identifies that way? Um, does that make him queer in a way? Um, and I think that's something he's living into and, and working out as well. Um, it's hard. It's hard for sure. I, I would imagine like the, I, I mean, I feel like I, like the last episode that we just had in the podcast, we talked a lot about communication and that word is coming to me again hearing you it sounds like the level of communication that you have to have is maybe forced a little bit more um than what we would typically or or maybe how we would typically think of a marriage of of where it's already set up of like when we have a heterosexual marriage it looks this way and we don't have to communicate about these things there's just assumed and and you all are having to kind of work with that and play with it and yeah. and like, it sounds sounds like a lot of work and goodness and, yeah. and freedom and yeah it is i mean i think communication is always going to be the key to a lot of these questions and relationships and i think that um you know there's something i mean not to say that andy and i are special or unique but the kind of people that we are and we joke and laugh about this but we have this tendency and we've always had this tendency to do things the hard way to make things super complicated, to make our lives just, um, sometimes people think we're crazy because we're just kind of, <laughs> we're all over the place. Um, the, you know, so it, it, it feels like it, it feels in some weird ways, for lack of a better word, natural for us to have these kind of challenges and these sort of obstacles and, and sort of, 
things in our marriage. Like we, we joked from the very beginning that the odds were totally against us in terms of we are both older siblings. And so, you know, like about birth order and all that, like apparently, uh, the oldest sibling married to the oldest sibling is like the least successful. <laughs> It has like, <laughs> like the least successful outcome, <laughs> um, which I mean, we've seen, uh, we've seen many reasons why that would be the case <laughs> in our own marriage. Um, we're both ministers. Um, there was another piece, I guess, both ministers in the same denomination. Um, and we're both pretty ambitious. Um, you know, we're always looking, looking um, to experience more, to understand more, to gain more, that kind of thing. So um, there's a lot there, you know, like it's, it's been pretty fiery in our life together. <laughs> um, and then having, uh, moving into the season of having children, it took, um, a couple of years. We struggled, um, with infertility and, um, there was a lot of question. Um, you know, we were just so focused on having children that we didn't have conversations about what it would look like after having them. And so those first couple of years were really tough because again, we were just, we both just kind of went off again, those, uh, what do you call them? Those traditional scripts, like the woman will stay home and be the primary caregiver and do everything. Even though we're both, we both have pretty modern, liberal, progressive sensibilities. Um, it was amazing to us to see how easy it was just to fall into that, into that pattern. I think once we started to let go of those sort of traditional notions of, you know, who was going to take care of the children and who was going to be, the one that brings home the bacon, so to speak. Is that, do people still say that? Is that a thing? I think, or, who knows? Oh <laughs> I use all these weird American idioms and I'm like, I don't know what half of them mean. <laughs> Bring home the bacon. I do love bacon. Though. Okay. So someone who's Me a traditional breadwinner, yeah, the breadwinner, we should say the bacon winner. Um, you know, as soon as we started to let, let go of that, then we realized, okay, now we need to be responsible for, uh, this continuous work of knowing the person in front of us, so like to, to lift up sort of the mystery, not only of our spouses, but of our children. So this really impacts like how we view the other, um, to realize like that we're always shifting and changing. And again, that's another sort of cliche thing about marriage and about relationships in general, that people are constantly changing. Um, and so instead of just assuming that we're married to the same person we were married to 10 years ago, um, that we have to do the work, communication, asking, um, discovering, making space for, um, uh, of knowing who that other person is in front of us. And so that's part of, part of what that commitment looks like to us now is that, um, is that reorientation, that sort of approaching each other as if this person was almost a stranger, you know, like not taken for granted, not taking for granted, um, who the person is in front of us in terms of, like assuming we know who they are and what they want and what's on their mind. I mean, there's, there are little things where I like, I'll see Andy make a facial expression. And I'm like, I know exactly what he's thinking. You know what I mean? Um, that comes with being with somebody for a long time, but I never want to, I never want either of us to assume that the other person or anyone in our lives is incapable of evolving and of changing and becoming something more. Um, so that's where we're at right now. Hopefully, hopefully that's, that, that, that's a spot. You mentioned a little bit earlier, you were kind of talking about, you called them like the meaningless categories, like, like those, those check marks on, on forms that we fill out about 
race and gender and sexuality and all those things. And, and I'd be curious, like, how would you say that queerness messes with those? And maybe, I mean, I, I'm hearing you say maybe in that, that queerness brings meaning back into some of these categories. Mm. Um, would you, would you say that or would you say something different? Like, I, I'd love to hear maybe some more about that. Yeah, I love that, actually. I mean, I think that as soon as I said those categories are meaningless, then I thought like, oh, shit, like someone is going <laughs> to. <laughs> and then I even felt like, no, actually it does matter that <laughs> I identify mm. as Korean and as a female um, and all that stuff. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think that there is something about queerness that does add meaning to those categories because it it sort of blurs and um, makes porous all those lines and those boundaries between those categories so that I'm not just Korean and I'm not just female and I'm not just married. Um, but that being a Korean female is something very particular. Um, and then being a queer identifying Korean female, um, that there's another sort of level of um, identity and experience and relationality there that um, I feel like gets alighted when we just focus on those, um, you know, no pun intended, straight boxes. <laughs> um, and so I think for me, um, what queerness has done, and, and this was, um, this was actually something that Darnell Moore had said on, um, he's the author of No Ashes in the Fire. Um, and was recently on the Trevor Noah show talking about his book and talking about queerness. And he said it best. I felt like um, it resonated so much. He says, um, he said, queerness is magic. There was just something super liberating and super um, empowering is not quite the, the white, the right word that sounds so like, uh, like, you know, self-help, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of image. But it's just something freeing about being able to claim and say who you are um, and who you love and um, your desires, um, your, your intimacies. Um, there's just something super beautiful and magical and so true about being able to claim queerness. Um, and so I think that's what that's um, that has been so life giving for me these last few years. Um, and then again, being surrounded by people who make space for that and who support that and, um, and see it and recognize it as something, um, that is essential and true to who I am. You write in your book, and I, I pulled this quote because I thought it was so good, that the queerness is a means of resistance that isn't passive, but constructive. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about right now. And and I'm also, but I'm curious also about this like community aspect, because you've mentioned that several times and that sense of like, you saying like, I, I wasn't able to explore these questions until I felt like I was held by this community that was around me. What has that been like as a, as a community activity of you stepping into these questions? Like, it sounds like a very individual process, but also not at all. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think there's something that um that within queerness um makes space for creativity um i know that there's you know there's a lot of um sort of theory out there about queerness being um anti-normative and anti uh, sort of assimilationist and anti those boundaries and those um sort of sort of structured understandings of um of, of identity and even of meaning um but i i don't know there's something for me 
and, and maybe this is just me because I am hopeful and optimistic and, and pretty naive <laughs> at a certain level. Um, but there's, there's something that makes me, f- makes me think that queerness is about, um, and has to include some notion of creativity and playfulness and c- forging, forging, um, bonds and, and, and a certain kind of kinship with people, a different level of, um, being social with people. Um, and again, you know, like there's, there's so many perspectives on, on, um, and theoretical sort of things about queerness. Um, but that's where, that's where I lean. And again, uh, it might be just rooted in, it's probably grounded in some kind of theological, like hope about, um, uh, humanity and God and, um, the kingdom and all that. Um, but, uh, I think that. It is definitely something that is an individual thing, um, but that I, I feel like as an individual that I wouldn't have come to it unless I had a space where people saw me, like really, truly and deeply saw me and named me and, um, and, and named me not in terms of like labels, but named me in terms of, you know, being God's beloved um, and God's creation and God's, um, even God's dream. And, um, so, so that kind of language of, um, of being more fully who I am, um, I think I, I just, I wouldn't have been able to do that on my own. Um, that it, it really has to be, um, that it really has to be something rooted in some kind of, for me, ecclesiology, some kind of theology of the church and community. One thing that you mention in your book, or it's not just something that you mention; it's kind of an underlying theme of the book, <laughs> is <laughs> is this idea of, of queerness being like a, a spiritual and theological category. And, and you talk about Jesus's queerness and queerness being an essential part of his identity and you write like it's it's a way that he reconciles divinity and humanity within himself for you like what has queerness done to your theological categories like what do you feel like you've learned about god and jesus and and your hermeneutic and your i mean you're you're mentioning all these theological categories i'd love to hear more about that those are i mean i think those are the questions that are still emerging for me in terms of um, thinking about the future and, um, you know, what does it mean to be, um, a person of Christian faith, um, who really believes in the incarnation and in, um, the hope of the resurrection and, um, and then thinking about the example of who Jesus is throughout the New Testament. I think for me, it, it's, it's sort of parallel to that, um, parallel to what um, Andy and I have discovered in terms of um, what I talked about for our relationship, realizing how much we needed to um, hold up the mystery of who the other person is um, as we con- as we continue to grow closer to each other. It's kind of that, you know, again, another sort of tension and paradox. And um, it just, it felt like for a long time, um, the sort of traditional structures of, um, meaning and reading the Bible, um, had really, um, become calcified. And I just wasn't excited, you know, about, and not to say that you need to have, like, and I talk about this in the book, you don't have to have butterflies all the time. Like I wasn't looking to have butterflies every time I read a story about Jesus doing such and such and such, but there was something about queerness that, um, was like a breath of fresh air every time I read, um, 
anything about um, Jesus interacting um, with whoever. Um, and so I think that seeing Jesus as queer, um, it wasn't just about like an affirmation of my own identity or an affirmation of queerness, really, um, but a realization that um, that God continues to be huge and mysterious, um, even in the incarnation, even in this person of Jesus Christ, that um, we think like, oh, okay, Jesus became human or is human or was human, whatever the language is. Um, so now we know everything about him because we ourselves are human. I'm like, no, actually it's super, it's still super shrouded and veiled and mysterious. Um, but there's something about, um, the particularity of Christian theology in terms of, well, we have the Holy Spirit given to us to fill in some of those gaps and those questions and those, um, uh, so to speak, I guess those holes in some ways to, to, to our understanding, um, and so I see it as sort of exciting. It becomes, it's become a lot more exciting and, and, and sort of an adventure to kind of reread these stories again, um, with this sort of eye to like, I really don't know who Jesus is, even though I've read the Bible cover to cover numerous times and read these particular stories numerous times. Um, that even reading these stories, that there are those places sort of in the margins of the text or in the holes of the text where like, there's something more about who um, the person of Jesus is and and what that could mean for who I am and what humanity um, could be. Um, And then the sort of orientation towards those people that he interacted with. I mean, it feels like um, the main hermeneutic growing up was, um, you know, in Sunday school and then in seminary, focus on what Jesus is doing. Okay, great. Yeah, that's obvious. But I love that even Jesus is oriented towards the people around him all the time. And so I think there's something there, the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, what are, what, what is Jesus? How is Jesus coming to us? through those very stories and those bodies and those lives and those people. Um, so I don't know, the incarnation has gotten a lot bigger and, and sort of thicker for me um, so that it's not just in the person of Jesus, but it's in um, the people around him and who he interacts with and connects with and is intimate with and is in constant community with. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, falling in love with Jesus all over again. Mm. I, I love that. And, and that, like, I mean, you're mentioning the incarnation and bodies, and it is, it sounds like a very kind of earthy grounded, like, it, like taking it out of kind of, of theory and, and theology as, as an academic study, but bringing it into the, the very personhood of who Jesus is, but who we are mm. as well. Mm. And, and you kind of have a, you have a whole chapter on bodies in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about an embodied spirituality and we talk about the incarnation of, of Christ becoming a human body, mm-hmm. what importance does that have? Where does that lead you? I mean, you've, you've kind of already talked about this, but like maybe say more about that, that embodiedness, mm-hmm. embodiment. Yeah, I think that... It feels like that that is an area where a lot of people are finding some resonance in terms of um, theology and Christianity and, and not just in terms of lived religion and like uh, material stuff and, and, and sort of the act and experience and practice, but really just um, where our bodies 
are the site for um, salvation and redemption and for grace. And um, I'd love to talk with and learn from, um, uh, and I need to get to, and this, so this is another reminder to myself. I'm flagging this to read Austin, Austin's yes. book. Um, because I think that there's something really powerful about the embodied experience of identity and faith there. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I think that, um, I think because our emotions are located in our bodies and our senses are located in our bodies and how we understand and see and move through this world, um, all of that is grounded in our bodies. Um, I think that really matters. Um, and, and everything that's, I mean, if we really boil down the basics of um, various aspects of Christianity and worship in terms of maybe the sacraments, um, you know, all of that is about our bodies. Um, I think about, you know, our bodies being fed at the table and our bodies being, um, quote unquote, cleansed at, at the baptismal font. Um, I think about, uh, about the ways that the Bible will talk about healing and wholeness and redemption. Um, and, and, and all of that is in connection to a discourse around purity. Um, and to me, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's to me that, that feels more, um, powerful and more true, um, and a way to start to address, um, not just the terrible appropriation of purity discourses in the New Testament, but to, um, possibly redeem them. Um, I don't know. I go back and forth on that, that whole thing. Um, um, so I, I, so just, so to think about our bodies as, um, not just a place or a site, but even the actual stuff of salvation. Um, it's like heretical. I feel like <laughs> it's probably not very terribly reformed because, um, you know, everything in the beginning, um, with reformation was rooted in, um, sort of this anti-material, anti-body, anti-icon, anti-image, um, uh, sort of language. And so how can we, how can we recover through the, the beauty and the goodness of, um, the creation of our bodies? Um, and that God started out everything with the creation of, of bodies, of stuff. Um, I'm still working it out though, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of, this is a quote that I've, I've said in some other episodes as well, because I love it so much, but it, Rowan Williams writes about, I think in, in his book of silence and honey cakes, uh, like mm -hmm. only the body saves the soul. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and like how almost offensive that, that, that sounds to like, to at least to my evangelical Christian ears from like 10 years ago <laughs> and also how incredibly intriguing and true it feels to be like this salvation whatever we define that as can only happen within a particular body particular locatedness particular places yeah. um it, it's, it's a really beautiful vision of what that all means in my mind um yeah, yeah. I feel hopeful about that. Yeah, I love that. I think there's there's yet to be there's a lot of work yet to be done um, on this, and I'm excited for for other folks to to take up that work as well. <laughs> um, but I'm excited to to look into that some more. Um, yeah, I'm I'm curious maybe to 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 wrap up a little bit for for people who are listening who maybe find themselves in kind of 
a similar locatedness to where you were a few years ago, beginning this journey of exploring queerness, maybe in a straight passing relationship or have always identified in a more kind of heteronormative way. What advice would you give to people who are kind of at the very beginning of that journey or who are in the midst of that journey? I mean, I think that it helped that we talked to someone else. So we were, we went to, to counseling um, so I think it helped to have like sort of a mediator, somebody to create a sort of a, a neutral space for us, someone who ended up being um, sort of a good interpreter for us, you know, in terms of um, helping us to begin that um, different, you know, begin to communicate with each other better. So not even just like being able to verbalize certain things, but to understand what the other person is verbalizing. Um, like a, a good counselor, I feel like is a good translator, a good interpreter. Um, helps us to to understand what the other person is is saying, you know, in terms of filtering out some of those feelings and those emotions um, or some of those those sort of surfacey things that are being talked about and then um, helping us to see what's sort of happening at a deeper level. Um, I felt like I feel like um, those are the most um, effective kind of therapeutic or counseling sort of experiences. Um, I think I think it's hard. I mean, I think like, to just to continue to frame um, uh, this kind of process and work as a as connected to that underlying commitment to one another, um, commitment to each other's well being. Um, I, I think that I think again, it's that pressure from those old and traditional normative scripts around marriage, where marriage is as soon as you sign that paperwork, you know, it's supposed to be a guarantee of forever. But then that kind of makes you, it lets you off the hook a little bit. And I I think in some ways that that ends up doing a disservice, like that kind of, that piece of the institution of marriage is something that's always bothered me and been sort of problematic. Um, And I've talked about this a lot with other folks as well, that, um, you know, we're not going to rely on a piece of paper to give us the guarantee of, you know, marriage being forever. Um, So we kind of actually even enter into this whole like, realize that there are no guarantees. And it's kind of scary to say that, you know, um, to sort of let go of the expectation that we know exactly how this is going to turn out. So we try to be as present and as focused and engaged in this moment right now and take it a day at a time um, to keep on checking in with each other, to keep on being as honest as possible with each other. Um, when we feel like it is pertinent to that particular conversation, honestly, like I don't think it's helpful for us to know everything about each other. You know what I mean? Like I I don't need to know every single thought that he has in his brain and he definitely doesn't need to know mine. Um, Because again, like there's, you know, we're not called to possess each other. We're not called to, um, you know, to own each other in that way. Um, But how do we in our commitment show and enact and embody that care for each other's well-being? I mean, to me, that's the commitment that, um, that marriage should be about. commitment to each other in that way. And then to this life together where we're trying to raise these children, raise these human beings to be better human beings in the future. Um, and, um, yeah, it's not hard. I mean, it's not hard. It's very hard. It's not easy. <laughs> it's terribly hard. Um, <laughs> that must've been like some weird Freudian slip, like crazy, like wish fulfillment. Thinking. <laughs> oh God. Um, mm. It's yeah. So I mean, I think that 
you know, I think that um, continuing to ground this work of being committed to a life together in the reality that there is no guarantee about the future, but that we will take it a day at a time and choose each other every, every single morning. Like today, these are the things I'm going to do to be committed to our life together. Um, because things ebb and flow. I mean, there are days where I want to kill him and there are days that I want to drive to Mexico, you know? Um, and so I think we just take it a day at a time. Um, and then eventually I'm looking at my parents, um, who have been with me, um, uh, at our house, um, helping with the, with the kids in our life right now. And they are, you know, just a typical old married couple. And I, I'm like, do you like each other still? How could you possibly still like each other? You know, like my dad's retired from ministry. They don't have anything else going on. And there's just an easy, comfortable, probably codependent at this. I mean, who isn't codependent at that age in that no. generation? <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's an easy, comfortable way about them. Um, and I think like if Andy and I get to that point, then that will be God's crazy miracle. And I just am going to be so grateful for that, for that experience. Uh, Mihi, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for creating this space. I mean, I think it's amazing the conversations that, um, that you're encouraging and that you're making space for. And, um, I think it takes a, a really special kind of sensibility and, and the ability to, to host a space like this and, and to draw people out in this way. So I appreciate it. It is a gift. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. How can, how can people find your work? Um, I'm on Twitter at Mihi Kim Court, and then just my website, Mihi Great. Awesome. Well, so grateful and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Hey, <laughs> <Thanks>, you too. <laughs> you can find Mihi over on her website, mihikimcourt.com. She's on Twitter at mihikimcourt. Be sure to pick up a copy of her new book, Outside the Lines, How Embracing Queerness Will Transform Your Faith. Uh, you can get that wherever you buy your books. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at queerologypod. You can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from Todd and Teresa Silver, Christian Hayes, and over 90 other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can join them, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. Although it sometimes takes a really long time. Until next week, y'all. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.